Bodies in the Bayous, a podcast by Morgan Kelly and Gretchen Scanlon, presents Season 4, Iola, Eroding Justice. Episode 6, Lauren Duffield, the babysitter murderer. Before we continue and tell you about the Iola Police Department's main suspect, Joseph Shoemaker, in the Betty Cantrell case, we wanted to continue to talk to you about how the husband or ex-husband is generally looked at first, like we discussed in episode four. So today we will be covering Betty Cantrell's ex-husband, Lauren Duffield, and the circumstances that ruled him out as a suspect in her case. Lauren Duffield was born in Trenton, Missouri on December 23, 1939 to Emery and Flossie Duffield. Lauren had two brothers, one older and one younger. He lived in Missouri till he was about eight years old. This would be the age when him and his family would move to Chinook, Kansas. His father got a job at the Chinook Police Department as a radio engineer. In Lauren's senior year of high school, the family would move to Topeka, where Lauren finished his last year of high school. He was above average student with no disciplinary problems. While Betty was attending high school, she met Lauren who was attending Iola Junior College. Lauren attended the junior college from September of 1957 to May of 1958. Lauren was a good man. His only interaction with the police was a speeding ticket and leaving the scene of an accident in 1958. Although that day he made a bad decision, he returned a short time later and admitted to what he had done. Betty and Lauren married on October 4, 1958, at the Christian Church in Nevada, Missouri. The couple started their lives together in a two-story house located at 318 Buckeye Street in Iola, which would be later converted to apartments. Lauren would follow his brother Leslie by enlisting in the U.S. Navy in November of 1958. The couple was stationed in San Diego for a time before attending the University of Oklahoma, and then the couple moved to 7940 Westcliff Drive, Norfolk, Virginia, into a small white shingled bungalow house. Lauren was a crewman on one of the Neptune patrol bombers of VAO-24 at the Norfolk Naval Air Station, working as an aviation electronics tech. Lauren drove a cream-colored 1957 Oldsmobile. Lauren and Betty welcomed their first child, Robert Neal, on February 18, 1962, in Norfolk, Virginia. The couple was happy. Betty staying at home taking care of Robert while Lauren worked. Lauren was also an avid bowler playing on several leagues. It seemed that they were a typical young couple starting out their lives and things looked very promising. Lauren was due to ship out to Puerto Rico with his patrol squadron, but was told he could not go due to an infection in his nose, so he was left at the base and hoped to be heading out in the spring. On March 5, 1963, the neighborhood would be abuzz hearing the news that a 14-year-old girl, Gwendolyn Constance Paget of Virginia Beach, had disappeared while on a babysitting job. Gwendolyn Constance Paget was the daughter of Willie and Ruby Paget. Connie, as she liked to be called, was born in North Carolina. Her family moved to Virginia Beach when she was young. Connie had three older brothers and a younger sister. She was the fun-loving 14-year-old junior high school student who was excited about her chance to begin working as a babysitter. 
She hung flyers around her neighborhood with her number and information. It took months, but finally, on March 4, 1963, she received her first call. The man said he wanted to take his wife out for the evening and they needed a babysitter for their son. He told her he did not think he could find her house, so he would meet up with her at the laundromat where she had hung up the flyer around 8 p.m. Bonnie's father, concerned about it being her first babysitting job, drove her over and they got there about five minutes before eight. But the man did not show up. They waited for about 30 minutes and then Connie's father drove her back home. It was about five minutes later when the phone rang again and the man called and said he had car trouble and asked if she would come back. This time, her father could not take her as he was busy with another task, and so he asked her older brother, Major, who was 17 years old, to walk her back. They waited for about five minutes, then the man came over and asked if she was ready. He was wearing blue pants and a white t-shirt. Major thought this was odd to be wearing since the man was going out with his wife, but he was picking up his wife, so he assumed maybe he had plans to change his clothes. Connie went with him, and the two of them got into a black car. He told Major that he would bring Connie back to her house around 11 or 11.30 p.m. Connie's father worked the night shift, so he was at work and did not know that his daughter did not return. Her mother fell asleep and woke up around 7 a.m. and discovered that Connie had not returned home by the next morning. Her mother tried the number that Connie had left for her, and the person at the other end did not know anything about Connie or the man that had picked her up. Her family called the police. Her brother gave a detailed description of the man and the car he drove. He even had written down the license plate number. Police officers began immediately to look for her, and her family's neighbors and friends began to search for her. The next day, police found the car that fit the description. The one that had been used to lure Per Connie away was abandoned in a parking lot. The car had been stolen earlier that morning from the school that Connie attended. Lauren reported to work on the 5th and mustered with his squadron doing odd jobs since the rest of his squadron was in Puerto Rico, leaving work around 4 p.m. Later that evening, Lauren Duffield came into the police station and reported that he had been assaulted and robbed. He had scratches all over his face and hands. He said that he was not going to report the incident, but his wife convinced him to come in. He told Sergeant Baum that he had been driving along the 100 Westmont Avenue block when he saw a man laying beside the road. He got out intending to help, but as he leaned down to help the man, he jumped up and grabbed him and another man ran to him too. They both assaulted him and beat him, then took his wallet and left him. They took $4 out and threw the wallet down. The officer accused him of concocting a story in order to hide an affair from his wife. They did this because he had the wallet and he also still had money in it. He left after filing the report. The next morning, when they call the call came into the police about the missing babysitter, around the same time, Duffield called and said that the officers were right and that he was trying to hide an affair and that he was so sorry to have wasted their time. Captain Charles D. Grant, chief of the Norfolk Detectives, reviewed all reports that had come in that evening. 
When looking at Lauren Duffield's case report, he noticed that Lauren bared a resemblance to the man who took the babysitters. He sent officers out to Lauren's house in order to question him some more. When they arrived, they were greeted by his wife, Betty. Betty explained that her husband was not there, but would return shortly. They offered to wait for him to return. While they waited in the living room, they asked if she knew what her husband was wearing the evening before. She left the room and returned with a pair of trousers and a white shirt. When Lauren arrived home, the officers met him and asked him to come downtown to meet with them. He agreed to follow them in his car. Once they arrived at the station, they asked to put him in a lineup, to which he agreed. In a move that would not be okay today, Major, the brother who accompanied his sister to the laundry, could not identify Lauren in the lineup. So they asked him to put on the pants and the shirt that he had worn the day before, and they placed him back in the lineup. This time, Major was like, that's him. That's the man that took my sister. After Lauren was taken in a room and questioned for several hours by a handful of officers, to which he said one threatened him and shook him and shook his fists in his face. But another man came in and talked to him nicely and treated him like a son. At that point, he confessed to this officer. He admitted that he was the man in the car that night that had kidnapped, raped, and later strangled 14-year-old Connie. He admitted to stealing a car that he had picked her up in, even going as far to act out the crime for the police. After the stenographer came into the room and began typing up a statement, at which time he said that Lauren nodded off to sleep while sitting up. He later claimed that he was never read his rights. Around 7 p.m. that evening, Lauren led police to Connie's body in a heavily wooded area off Wolf Snare Road near Virginia Beach. She was found nude, a small gully covered with leaves and pine needles at the base of a young pine tree. All she had on was a tiny gold cross around her neck and a scarf was wrapped around her neck that had apparently been used to strangle her. The only other article of clothing found near her was her coat that had been thrown partly on top of her. She had been sexually assaulted. Lauren freely admitted to stealing a car and then going to the laundry in order to meet Connie, taking her in the car to a nearby school where he raped and strangled her. He then drove her body to Wolfsnare Road and dumped her. It was up to Betty to call and inform Lauren's family about what was happening. Lauren's family was in disbelief. His mother gave an interview to reporters saying that there were no problems with Lauren growing up and that he had no behavior issues. He did well in school, dated normally, and as far as she knew, there were no domestic issues in the marriage. He's a good boy. Lieutenant Sarsville, officer in charge of Lauren at the Navy base, declined to discuss Lauren with the press or have anyone else in the squadron be allowed to make comments. What was released would be to say that he was a good all-around technician who made average marks. The next day, he was brought into the courtroom and charged with the abduction. He simply shook his head while detectives testified about the case. When asked if the testimony against him by an officer was true, he said yes. When asked if he stole a car, he replied yes. When asked if he abducted a child, he said yes. When asked if he raped and killed her, he simply nodded. 
When asked if his intention was sexual, he nodded yes. Asked if he intended to kill her, he shook his head no and said, I just wanted a woman. He was held on $202,000 bond. Then, on the 12th, he was brought back into court and charged with first-degree murder, grand larceny, and rape. At this point, he was held with no bond, as they had decided that this was a death penalty case. He waived his rights to a preliminary hearing. Four days after Connie's death, the Tidewater Coin Operating Laundry Company banned the use of bulletin boards in the building for advertising for babysitters. The hope was to prevent this from happening again. Other businesses followed suit, and the city tightened their ordinance on curfews for minors, fining parents who violated the curfew who did not have teens at home by 11 p.m. City schools decided to teach about the danger of sex offenders in all schools. The city stated that they were looking for parents to protect their children by not allowing them to go on errands at night and keeping their children safe at home. On April 1st, the grand jury returned an indictment of murder, and two days later, Lauren's lawyer had him committed to Southwest State Mental Hospital. The state hospital sent a report to the court that stated that Lauren had not been insane or had a psychological incident while in their care. And since he knew right from wrong on the day that he kidnapped, raped, and murdered Gwendolyn Connie Pageant, he was fit to stand trial. The trial began on September 25th. Lauren Duffield pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Lauren's claim of insanity was that he was a sexual deviant. Connie's father testified that he wanted to tell Connie, no, she was not going back out to take the babysitting job, but he just couldn't stand to see her disappointed. She was so excited to go. Lauren testified in his own defense and said that he just had to have a woman. On September 27th, the jury received the case, and 28 minutes later, they returned a verdict of guilty and asked for a sentence of death. Lauren's lawyer asked that the verdict be set aside and examined, as he did not think it was fit with the law. The motion was argued and denied, and on January 7, 1964, Lauren Duffield was convicted of murder and sentenced to death on March 20th. Lauren no longer had the money to pay for a lawyer, so it was John Butzner, a spiritual advisor, along with Lauren's wife, mother, and brothers who advocated on his behalf for a stay of ex execution. Governor Harris stayed the scheduled execution in the electric chair for Lauren from March 20th and rescheduled it to April 17th, 1964. He did this because state law required a minimum of 15 days in prison, not jail, 
before the execution of a person could take place, and Lauren had only been in prison for 10 days. On April 17th, advocates for Lauren tried fervently to meet with a judge to grant a stay of execution in order to read Lauren's habeas application, which he had written himself. In the habeas application, Lauren claimed that the clothing he was wearing was illegally obtained, that it was due to the fact that Betty had given the clothing to law enforcement without Lauren's permission. He would later also appeal in June of 1964, stating that he had been pressured to confess by a police officer that had become like a father figure to him. Both appeals were denied. Betty filed for divorce on May 14, 1964, and headed home to her family in Iola. The divorce was granted on August 10th. She remarried quickly on September 14, 1964, to David Cantrell. Betty was 23 years old at the time, and David was 35. After Lauren's appeal was denied, he would wait on death row for many years. In 1972, the United States Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment was unconstitutional and therefore Duffield had, be, had to be resentenced. At the time, Lauren had been in prison for 10 years and was now an ordained Baptist minister in the prison. During the resentencing trial, he said that he was a changed man and that he wanted to go to Florida and marry a Christian woman named Miss Pat Devine. He met her as a pen pal. He also stated that a jury resentenced him to life in prison. When the judge asked Lauren if he wanted to appeal the verdict, Lauren stated, no, it's the Lord's will. With the new sentence, he would have been eligible for parole after five years. Lauren stated that it was a fair sentence for the first time considering the crime. Miss Devine must have been unwilling to wait because a marriage never took place between the two. But in 1978, while still in prison, Lauren married Louise Wade, while institutionalized at Bland Correctional Center. Although eligible for probation, it would never be granted and Lauren Duffield would die in prison in 2014. guys so thanks for bearing with us we know that was a lot of information on lauren duffield but we definitely thought it was important to kind of bring him into the forefront uh, considering that he was betty's ex-husband yeah it's there's so much there that's very interesting but i think the first thing that i want to discuss today was the fact that lauren should have been in puerto rico at that time with his squadron and and he had that nose infection, so he wasn't able to go. It does make you wonder, you know, if he was on assignment in Puerto Rico. How the world would have been different. Mm -hmm. Connie probably be alive today, have her own family, going on a babysitting job with somebody different. And Lauren might still be married. Yeah, you know, as far as we can tell, she loved him. You know, I mean, there were no problems in their marriage that anybody really had testimony to at all at all right, right. so and even when he's still in prison and she's married 
to David. One of the things that David's stepdaughter told us was that Betty worked to send care packages or money to Lauren while he was still in prison. That it was a point in David and Betty's marriage, something that they argued about quite frequently. Yeah, because that's, you know, one of the reasons that she was working at the Dine Out Cafe was not only to send those care packages, but to also take care of her son that she had with Lauren. And I can imagine, I mean, not to say that she shouldn't have been, but I can imagine that even in today's standard, sending care packages to your husband who's still in prison while you're married to somebody else, that would be a strain on a relationship. Well, sure. And he's in prison for doing something horrific horrific to a 14-year-old child, right? right? So it's not like he's in there for like being a three-time convicted felon of, you know, petty theft or something, Right. right? I mean, this is a terrible crime that he's in there for, and she seems to still have care for him considering that some of that may have just come from the fact that this was the father of her child we don't know you know nobody is really alive to give us an idea of what was going through her mind but it certainly is something that shows that she still cared for him even though she had divorced him the divorce is kind of going on while he's still fighting for the death penalty probably with the hope that he's hoping that he would be able to get out and rejoin his family. And then the divorce happens and she remarries relatively quickly, which I think in order to care for her child and for herself, you know, she didn't have a whole lot of options too. And maybe it was partly that she didn't want to be associated with being the wife of somebody who could do this. I imagine it was pretty shocking Uh, when the police are coming to knock at her door. And I don't think at the time she even thought anything about it because she does hand over the clothes that he was wearing the night before. So I don't think at the time she would, she probably even thought he could be involved in anything like that. Well, and in the appeals process, he puts a lot of blame on the fact that she shouldn't have handed over those clothes that she didn't really have permission to hand those over. Some blame on saying that it might not have been the correct clothing, too. It's kind of put back on her, so her decisions led to the the trial and the conviction, but clearly that's not true. I mean, he's the one who, he does confess, but it's not just a confession. He confesses, he leads them to her body, he's very specific about what happened, he's acting out the murder to the investigators at the time. There's no doubt that Lauren Duffield killed Connie. It's not a false confession or anything like that that it comes back to. So I I would think that over time she certainly had decided that this wasn't the marriage that she had wanted well you know the other thing that's kind of crazy just talking about you know lauren's confession and the things that he told police and stuff that came out during the trial the one thing that always stuck out to me was the fact that you know one of the reasons that he said that was just always something very weird for me because he says that i wanted a woman knowing that she's a child and you're talking about north virginia where there was a large naval base if he was looking for just 
sex, there were places that he could have gone other than to the elaborate plans that he went to in abducting and killing Connie. Right. And I mean, we definitely know, you know, all branches of the United States military have those big get togethers and dances and balls where they go out and meet or, you know, they meet up at certain bars or locations. So women at the time would go there seeking husbands that were enlisted, right? Right. Because they knew they would be taken care of. So yes, he could have gotten it from a woman, quote unquote, pretty easily, I would think. It is interesting that he says in the appeal also that he felt like the he made the confession to somebody who he had become like a father figure. And when you think that Lauren's father actually worked for law enforcement, he wasn't a law enforcement officer, but he worked for law enforcement. I can see how he made that bond. Not that the confession is false, but I can see how that bond kind of happened there. Well, yeah, I'm sure it was pretty easy for him to start talking once that bond is kind of built because you think this person in a way is in your corner, even though you've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And then just to kind of go back on that, you know, earlier on, even before, you know, he was married to Betty, there was the talk about how he did the hit and run. Right. So he knew that he made that mistake, came back and tried to right his wrong. When he's making that confession to somebody he thinks is a father figure, he probably in a way feels like he's righting his wrong. Even when he's resentenced, which when he's resentenced, what he's kind of saying there is the sentence of life in prison, he thinks will be fine for the crime that he committed. I think he's down playing the crime like the crime wasn't as big a deal but the but being sentenced to death was too much for that crime well yeah i think he did in his head think that way because he said he his intention was not to kill her you know that it it just happened in his head he it just happened right yeah i think he's a liar mm -hmm. i'm sorry i think his intention probably was to rape and kill her the entire time he went to too many lengths he is stealing the car he was probably at the laundromat when she showed up with her father and did not identify himself at that time because she was with her father and then changed his mind and got her back out there trying to figure out how he could get her alone he went to too many lengths. I wondered whether or not he knew who she was from the very beginning because he steals the car from her school. I don't know if if he knew her, if he saw her putting up that sign in the laundromat or saw her checking that sign in the laundromat and decided that it would be her. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you too. There is him calling back after they had already left I kind of did in my head think like, oh, you know, he changed his mind. Like he talked himself back into doing it, you know, where maybe he might've been on the fence beforehand. You know, the father was probably a deterrent from that as well. What were the odds that she'd come back without him though? Or he had thought about it as a fantasy for so long and finally acted on something like that. But I mean, what were the odds that she came back with her brother? I do wonder though, had he appealed more in the early 2000s closer to the time of his death based on the lineup if he would have had a better chance of getting this thrown out because having him go back having him go back in there and put on those clothes and then coming out to the lineup i think that would have been 
completely illegal. Sure. It's illegal now because of things like that. It might have granted him a new trial. With it, I don't know if it would have thrown out the confession. It's it's one of those questions that you have. You know, had he appealed differently later on? Based on that, based on being put back in the clothes, would everything that happened after the lineup be thrown out? Well, yeah, and you know what's, and I mean, I get it. He's a young, he's a, he's a child himself. Major, her brother is a child himself, right? He's only seventeen years old. But changing of the clothes does it really make that big a difference? I mean, it's just a question. Like I know we don't really know, but like to me, you look like you no matter what you have on. You know, I guess it just gives you that more of a picture of like, oh, that's exactly what he was wearing. So that must be him. But yes, based on that lineup, unless everybody else was wearing the exact same thing, I think it's completely illegal. You definitely set him up to be single-handedly picked out. And the one thing that we don't know is if they send him back in there, he's sent back in as the one person who changed his clothes, or he's the one person that has been seen in both lineups. Exactly. Major had gone through a horrible, horrible trauma, and I think incredible amount of guilt for what had happened. And there's no doubt that Lauren killed his sister. But that lineup, thank gosh we don't do things like that nowadays because that will get a murderer set free. Well, sure. And think of, you know, what they say about eyewitness testimony already, you know, already so hard just to base a trial or a conviction off of what one person saw. I mean, fortunately, Lauren did do this and it's it was the right conviction right mm -hmm. you know the right thing that happened no yeah had things been done like that now the other thing that comes up in this which i have not seen before is this death penalty thing so i had no idea that it would be that quick i mean that he really would have been sentenced to death within like three months of being convicted or three months of being finally sentenced. So he's sentenced in January, and then his first was going to be in March. Yeah, think about that, though. He would have only had to serve, what was it, 10 days? 10 days in prison. That's right. not even two weeks before you literally could be put to death. And it was only because of a transportation thing about getting him transferred from the jail to the actual prison that that governor stayed execution, which then got the ball rolling on many other stays of execution that happened over the years, uh, more habeas corpus, other lawyers coming in, and then finally, you know, the death penalty taken away. And so him having to be resentenced, something was stopping this guy from getting put to death. I mean, he does live out his life in prison until 2014, but he was, at that point in time, had become a Baptist minister. And uh, well, there's a shocker. Found God in prison. Gretchen, the other parallel to this case that is the entire reason that he came up on our radar was how close this crime that he committed against Connie is so similar to Sally. This was one of those things when I did the research that I just, it was unbelievable. Because at that time, we were starting to try to figure out whether or not Sally was one of the babysitters for the Cantrell family. And then in doing that research, you're looking into Betty and this starts to come up. And it just still, it's unbelievable how close these are. And I have 
you know, come up with all the, all the theories that I possibly can of like, could he have been out because he was at having a stay of execution? Was it possible that they had done short leaves for him or something? And I haven't found anything to say that, but I mean, I went down that rabbit hole, which says these things are so similar that there has to be a connection. It just seemed like it, especially starting out as we're getting, you know, the background into the different uh, people involved in these cases. And it's just like, this comes up and you're just like, what? Wait a minute. Because it makes you have to dig deeper and and see if it's possible. Because I was even like, does he have family out there? Were they ever involved with anything with him? Like, you, you, have, you have to look into all those as options, right? And like you said, we didn't come across anything. It's just so unbelievable how parallel they are to what happened with sally right all we can say is there was nothing out there that we found Hey guys, so that's going to wrap up today's episode. We wanted to take a few minutes and invite you to come see us. We will be at the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival in Austin. It is going to be held at the Double Tree Hotel, Hilton Hotel. It is August the 25th through the 27th. So if you do happen to make it, stop by our booth and grab some goodies that we're giving away. Hope to see you there. Thanks everyone for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research sources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle, and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Catherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.